Hello and welcome to the Stack Magazine's podcast. My name is Stephen Watson. I'm the founder of Stack, the service that searches out the best independent magazines and delivers them to thousands of readers around the world every month. This week I'm speaking with Martha Dillon, editor of It's Freezing in LA, the magazine about climate change that recently published its eighth issue themed around borders. We were speaking a couple of weeks after COP26 came to an end and I was interested to hear Martha's thoughts on that, even if they don't offer a lot of hope for the effectiveness of the whole project. But I felt much more optimistic about her thoughts on the experience of running the magazine today and how the entire climate change conversation has really opened up and allowed them to be more ambitious in what they're doing. I think this is their best issue to date and I'm pleased to say we have copies available to buy in the Stack shop so please head over to stackmagazines.com forward slash shop if you'd like to pick one up for yourself and I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Martha from It's Freezing in LA. Martha, thanks so much for making time to talk. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. So I've got your latest uh, issue in front of me, the borders issue. Um, I guess the first thing that strikes me is this is, I mean, your magazine is kind of always political, but this is a very political subject uh, within the the theme of, uh, of climate change. What, what made you want to look at this theme now? Yeah, I mean, a few reasons. I think we've been learning as we grow how useful themes are just in terms of magazine making and to to catalyze people's ideas and to really sort of focus on what we're trying to say and and touch on lots of the different ideas that that go into different concepts um so we were thinking about about the theme and and about COP26 and and what it was we wanted to say and we felt like in previous issues we sort of covered you know ideas around urgency or international action or you know global global politics stuff and actually I think the thing that we realized talking as a team we were most anxious about um, was was that idea of global inequity and, and movement across borders and you know legal action across borders and and wanted to know more about that we wanted to ask writers and, and people we think are saying interesting things about climate um, what borders mean in their work so we touched on lots of different um, concepts around borders not just sort of things moving across them, but sort of the ideas of borders in ecology or um, you know, borders in, in art and film and stuff like that. So it mm-hmm. felt like a very fruitful topic that kind of got to the heart of, of the things about COP that were making us as a team quite anxious. Yeah, yeah. And, and one that's difficult to talk about as well, because so in your first piece, uh, the writer makes the point that actually, legally speaking, there is currently no such thing as a climate refugee. The, the you know, people move across borders for many reasons, but and, and I guess because of you know the history of like how we've got here, we think of uh, like armed conflict as being a reason for being forced out of your home. But at the moment, climate change is not one of those reasons. Yeah, absolutely. Or or at least it's not. Because it's not always the obvious reason, the fact that it's linked to people's choices to move, which are always so, always so complicated and mm-hmm. got so much context to it. Um, you know, an environmental resource scarcity, lack of water, droughts, famines, those are all environmental factors that 
that might cause people to have to leave their homes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think there's, there's been research already about how much of, sort of current conflict, for example, in Syria are linked to water or, um, you know, the relationship between Israel and Palestine um, has a lot about sort of resource plundering going on in it. So, yeah, I agree. I think the fact there's no definition is, is, a, is hugely important, but also it, it belies the fact that climate is already a factor in in people's migration and movement. Yeah, yeah. And, well, and I guess this is kind of... Uh, wider problem of what's happening with climate at the moment in that it's all so big and systemic and slow that it's almost kind of impossible to put your finger on what like if for example if you're talking about someone who'd been displaced from their homes because of flooding you can see immediately like oh gosh yeah, a, a terrible thing happened you were literally driven out of your home and now you've got nowhere to go whereas when you're talking about the like drought which has like formed over several years that i mean it's just harder to put your finger on it and say that's the the climate has forced you to move from where you were previously living yeah absolutely and it will tend to be you know the the choice of place people choose to move to probably won't be an environmental factor Mm. whereas if they are staying within territories of their their state or their country it might be so you know even in the uk right fairborn is you know people always cite as the first uk village that is, is sort of being closed because of climate because because sea level rise is too difficult to protect against um and that is seen as a climate thing because the discussion is just around the kind of environmental factors whereas actually there's tons of political factors there as well you know why why is this community being abandoned why do people live there historically um there's always so much going on and it's and i think what fascinated me about working on this issue was how much of it is based on just where we're looking at it from you know mm. what border you're inside what mm. your sort of attention to borders looks like um are you thinking about climate as a factor when like you say people you know you're looking at a story about people moving um it's such a useful prism to kind of investigate climate with um, yeah. as well as obviously being having having a lot behind it in its own right yeah 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 uh, and then <laughs> i think also you know kind of there's actually a real willingness in this magazine to push beyond you know simply stating the situation as you see it and and there's there's a real willingness to kind of move into more radical territory and so so for example there's a a, a piece uh, on the concept of climate reparation, which so I I, I am familiar with the idea of uh, reparation uh, based on race, but this is the first time that I'd ever come across something where people were talking about actually look at look at the way that our societies have been formed today, and the damage that has been done to other people's uh, way of life for hundreds of years and we need to start to redress that and, and, and rebalance it yeah absolutely i think it's such a fascinating piece such a brilliantly written piece by saha shah um he's an academic at warwick university and, and works on the concept of reparations um and it really informed my thinking as well on, on lots of these issues so um you know at cop a lot of the discussion was around sort of payment by you know largely the, the global north and, and northwest to countries experiencing climate change more acutely, largely in the global south, and how small that financing is at the moment. Mm-hmm. And actually, Saha's piece was so definite in the sense that, you know, this is not, we need to take a step back 
from that. There's so much more going on here than just a kind of transfer of a small amount of money. Um, and, you know, what does it actually mean to say, look at this huge injustice, we can't just sort of tweak at the margins, we need to completely rethink the system. And the only way to do that is through sort of proper reparations that actually try and support, you know, support rebalancing of, of, of this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking, I don't know if you saw, you know, this, this story at the moment about Prince William, who's sort of blaming overpopulation in kind of very broad terms, you know, Africa is overpopulated and destroying the environment. And, and you know, all these young climate activists very rightly saying Africa is responsible for 3% of emissions. You know, the UK <laughs> created engines that, that have caused this problem. Um, you know, how dare you? And I think, and yeah, and Saha's piece always really resonates with me in those stories of just, it's just such a solid statement of like, no, like we can't be talking in these terms anymore. What We actually have to flip this over now. Mm. Uh, really mm. powerful. And so, I mean, you've mentioned COP26 a couple of times that inevitably uh, something as big as that is going to, uh, you know, kind of be be visible in this issue. Um, I I was, I sort of noticed that, so you you wrote a piece um, on the Paris Agreement in the run up to COP26, where I guess, you know, you were kind of throwing ahead to what might come out of COP26? Like, how did the reality hold up to what you had uh, expected? Yeah, I mean, so what I was writing about was, you know, at COP, one thing they were trying to do was get countries to make their kind of very high-level targets more ambitious. Um, But the actual negotiations were about these quite technical parts of of the Paris Agreement and kind of, you know, things that, that most of us won't really think about or engage with because they're fairly subtle. So things like how people report things, templates and financial market rules and stuff like that. And I think um, what I felt in the run up to COP and was the sense that, you know, we have a ridiculous system where these high level targets aren't working. If you, you know, if you, if you sort of put them into the climate models, they're not coming out with an effective result. You're still getting catastrophic climate change. So what's what's going on like that doesn't sound like a very good agreement to me if if it doesn't work when people sign up to it um and so what i was sort of trying to argue i don't know very well was you know it's we can't the goal of cop can't be to kind of sign off the agreement while it's not working and mm-hmm. um, we need to be rethinking it and so unsurprisingly the par- the cop did not change the paris agreement fundamentally you know people did make slightly more ambitious targets or you know rehash old targets um but unsurprisingly weren't kind of massively rethinking it and I think I think watching it I still I still feel the same um and I think maybe more so you know I think originally the Paris Agreement being quite flexible was important while there wasn't a huge amount of support Mm. for it Mm. um because it just sort of got people around the table but now now that there is such a huge amount of support it's it it was disappointing that not not only could they not (laughs) get effective targets but also that they were still focused on kind of signing off what they already had rather than trying to really kind of bolster it and and let it evolve with climate action mm-hmm. um, so uh, yeah I don't yeah so I, I was just gonna ask and so were you watching this like you know kind of the same as me on the news or, or did you know did you go there is is there kind of do you see the sort of like you know the role of your magazine as being there at something like COP26 or do you see that as not really kind of in your purview like it's not really what you're doing yeah it's not really because we're not uh we're not because we're sort of 
very slow journalism kind of essays we're not trying to report on anything mm. obviously we were watching it and following it and, and the next issue will, will sort of digest some of it um I, I didn't go I sort of I yeah I, I sort of did it virtually and we did lots of stuff in London um but I think it's tricky for an indie magazine um dealing with such a present topic because it's you know you don't just have the resources really um so yeah I think I think our focus is, is now to digest it and, and hopefully be able to reflect on it in a kind of considered way with, mm. a, with, with the dust settling yeah yeah so so the one that I've got in front of me now is issue eight um and we were just saying before we started recording this so you started in 2018 I was actually really shocked when I so uh, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this will know, but um, the name It's Freezing in L.A. comes from uh, a quote uh, taken from Donald Trump, uh, where he was basically denying climate change and saying that it's freezing in L.A. at the moment. Um, I was kind of amazed to see that quote is from 2013. <laughs> the, which, and like, you know, you print that on the back of the magazine and it, it's there. And I, I remember when the first issue came out, Donald Trump, I think, was probably like in his second year of of being president, and it all just felt like so completely catastrophically present and happening now. I was really, yeah, I keep saying amazed to see that that quote from two thousand and thirteen. That's like that's a long time ago now. Does it yeah. do, does it feel different for you making this magazine now to how it was when you started? It does definitely. So when we started it, you know, it was not very long before, sort of six months before, but just before um, Extinction Rebellion, before sort of Greta, um, certainly a lot of the kind of environmental activism around the world by kind of indigenous groups and, and local populations was very poorly reported on. So really a kind of not particularly high level of climate discussion in, in the kind of media in the UK where most of us are based. Um, so we were really craving just any kind of platform that could get into the detail and, and complexity and sort of anger of it. Mm. Um, and that's obviously much, much greater now. Um, so it does feel different. It feels like we need to focus more and we've got the opportunity now to kind of hone in on, like you say, maybe being more political, maybe sort of um, you know, asking for more because we, there are more people having the same discussions. There are more people willing to write about climate um, and who have real expertise about climate in different areas. Mm. Um, so I'd say, yeah, it has changed a lot. In terms of action, I think also outside of the media, it's obviously changed a huge amount. Um, but it feels almost like we have more work to do now because now, now things are kind of happening. It's more important than ever that people watch it and, and say whether they think it's good enough and say if it's socially just or fair or you know actually going to work for the people it affects um so i think i feel i feel more scared now in some ways of, of it all being done badly um so yeah we've, we've definitely got the work to do well, well, and also, so I mean, one way that you do that work is in producing this magazine. And I mean, you know, it's, it's, I, I really love watching magazines like evolve and change. And so the, there was a big change from your first issue to your second, where you went from like a much smaller run into something that is more like, you know, kind of a, a magazine that's distributed to a, a, a wider audience. But, I, you know, it's it's striking that aside for so like from issue two onwards actually the magazine physically and in terms of the design and the the layout has stayed you know really quite consistent with what we've got here today mm. and, and and in contrast to that i think the writing so the writing in this latest one i think is the best one that i've seen yet and is 
really persuasive, like, you know, really uh, well-written, well-edited by, you know, people who clearly <laughs> really know what they're talking about. This is not to say that the other ones were not, but it's just that this this one feels like you're hitting, like, the, the sort of the highest levels. Yeah, I mean, again, is this... Is that kind of how it feels to you or does it does it feel differently to you? Yeah, absolutely. I think we've really hit our stride and I think um you know, we've I think during the pandemic we sort of rallied and you know, like lots of indie magazines it was really difficult with, with sort of shops closing. But actually I think since that point we've we've been able to kind of step up and galvanise and, and have the chance to sort of really think about who we want to work with, what we want to write about and yeah, as you say, I think I think the writing course has improved enormously and, and that's that's largely because as an editorial team, we're being much more focused about what we want to say. And again, I think that comes from the fact that this is more out there now. So we can have that kind of do that depth and, and that have that rigor and have those options of people to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think, and, I'm, and we're really excited about our next issue. We're, we're sort of, we're using, I think we're using the energy from this issue to really, you know, try and keep stepping up and, and kind of solidify what, what I think we've done in the last couple of issues. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, look, as speaking as someone who is on the outside, that that sounds incredibly exciting to me. And, the, you know, there, there are sort of there are rare opportunities around climate to feel like positive and excited. And I think that, you know, the, the fact that this magazine has grown and evolved, you know, in response to the the... I guess the conversation opening up and becoming um, louder, just in the like you know everyday life, is I, yeah I, I take that as a as a positive. And then so you've got your next issue you're working on, but then I gather there's also an exciting thing happening next year with the Welcome Collection. Yeah, so so alongside our next issue, um, we're doing a collaboration with the Welcome Collection, um, who obviously produce lots of incredible exhibitions and writing and, and work about um, largely about healthcare and they've got a real focus on climate at the moment um, so we are cross-publishing some pieces with them and doing some work with them in for our spring issue so mm-hmm. again just it just feels really nice to be able to kind of work with new people and, and kind of think collectively with with people with real expertise in in, in different areas from us so so our next our spring issue will be about health um mm-hmm. so we're looking at the moment for writers and, and commissions um who've been thinking about climate and health and, and the environment and environmental so, impact of, of health as well so so will that be issue nine yes that will be our, our may issue nine uh, and how does that come about i mean the you know is that you going out to lots of different organizations and saying hey we're here this is what we do we'd love to work with you or was it them coming to you no, they came to us. I think um, I think one of their sort of production and editorial team had been following us, um, and I just reached out. and And they do these sort of collections of um, stories and, and first person essays on on one of their platforms, and, and asked us if we wanted to come and do a sort of get guest editorship program with them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and then it goes from there. Well, that's that's fantastic. That's great. So so it's, we're looking f- uh, May next year for for that coming out. Yeah, May next year. Uh, and will you be keeping the the same graphic treatment? So th- this is like I think probably for a lot of people it's kind of well it's, it's like my favourite bit of the magazine is every issue you have these like kind of abstract patterns that run through, and then you kind of reveal what the pattern is based on. So so are you, will that be kept for the next issue? 
oh, I can't, I, I think I should keep that under wraps. <laughs> what the art team is planning. <laughs> part, part of it is I just love like imagining the process of you finding them. So, so the, this, for this issue, uh, it's again something I've never heard of called bathymetry. So the practice of mapping the seafloor, um, and as you point out, the you know the seafloor has largely been mapped for like you know kind of extraction um, purposes, uh, and then that you come across this thing called the Nippon Foundation's Jebco Seabed Twenty Thirty project. I mean, how how do you even come across something like that and then think, oh, we could turn this into a, a great graphic treatment for the magazine? <laughs> it's a good question. Um, it's it's a really it's one of my favourite processes of, you know, because because we, I don't know, because we work a lot with scientists and people doing quite technical writing. Um, I think it's yeah, it's a really exciting point of connection between sort of editorial and the art team, and the graphics are a really good example of where there's a real kind of dialogue. So we'll have we'll come up with a theme, and then normally what happens is the kind of editorial team, or, or we've got a kind of data scientist on the team, will will sort of talk about you know, possible data sets or patterns or environmental variables or whatever it might be um, that are kind of linked to the theme. And then we'll sort of chat with the design team about, um, you know, different data sets we come across, um, ones that maybe someone's worked with or we've just found through Googling. And then sometimes we've had, you know, we've worked with the scientists directly for our seventh issue. We have these ice core data, mm-hmm. um, microscopic images and we just had this really brilliant dialogue with one of the scientists involved with it and she really helped sort of talk through what it all meant and you know why the sizes of the ice grains changed and what climate change meant for that and it's just a really brilliant experience of, of sort of yeah real privilege to, to talk to these scientists and try and understand what what it meant for them to to work on these these really scary data sets that that mean something so political yeah yeah and so then i mean looking at this one you've got um you've done it in like pink and gray so the like the bits of the seabed that have been mapped are, are there in pink and you get this really kind of like scratchy almost kind of like graffiti sort of um effect and then you know in previous ones i'm thinking of like the australian um bushfires i think it was uh where you took like heat maps and that thing was done in like sort of like red and green and it almost was like sort of like a camouflage kind of effect yeah. do you, like <laughs> do have you over the years got a certain way down one of these data sets and then just gone do you know what this just looks rubbish <laughs> this this is not it's not lending itself um i don't know we've definitely again sort of through that iteration there's definitely good ideas that come up that, that don't don't work so well so we go a different <laughs> way um this data set was quite challenging to work with because it came from so we're talking about borders and what we wanted to write about and for a long time we were going to try and do a piece about um the deep sea and you know the fact that we don't really understand the borders of our own land masses and our own planet mm. um but it didn't, didn't quite work as an article and then when we were thinking about the graphics we were sort of wondering whether there was something there and then as we were looking at different data sets we realized how much the seafloor we only know about because of oil and gas and you know what does that actually mean you know in some ways it feels like it's a good thing because they're helping expand the knowledge of the seafloor but is it actually if they're then building big oil rigs in those places and it just we just had so many conversations about it and it really stuck with us and so we tried to kind of pin it down and luckily it worked but I think yeah if it hadn't worked I don't know we'd have had to do a last minute a last minute job on something else uh, well look I, I again I, I'm a massive fan of the magazine generally but also this this latest issue I think it's like really really good so um thanks very much for sending that over and um, I'm really looking forward to seeing this health one coming out next year yeah thank you so much for having me
Okay, that's all for this week. I would like to say thanks again to Martha for speaking with me and for sharing her thoughts on how the whole job of publishing a climate change magazine has evolved over the last few years. If this has left you wanting to see the magazine for yourself, please do go to stackmagazines.com forward slash shop and search for it there. Um, We have a few issues of It's Freezing in LA in stock, but the one we were talking about is issue eight. And remember, if you use the code podcast, you'll get 10% off all our magazines and subscriptions. As I record this, it's the beginning of December, so if you're listening to this in the next few weeks, please do keep us in mind when you're doing your Christmas shopping. Uh, Our surprise magazine subscription in particular makes for a great Christmas present. Um, You can choose to give three months, six months or one year subscriptions. Totally ideal for anyone who wants to read independent publishing from outside the mainstream. If all that sounds like something you might want to see more of, go to stackmagazines.com forward slash Christmas to see all of our Christmas plans uh, and our offer that lets you choose the first magazine that we send to your gift recipient. Thanks very much for listening to this one and we'll be back with another episode next week.